0: Welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we explore the subject of socialism. With the term pulling higher than ever at IWF, we believe it's important to not only analyze its meaning, but also discuss whether or not it improves the lives of those who are struggling the most. I really couldn't think of a better person to give his perspective on the issue. It's an honor to have on Sylvana Salinas. He is the president of the Foundation of Economic Education. And he's here to give his firsthand account of what life was like in the Soviet Union and explain why he believes that a free market system, a capitalist system, is the best form of government for everyone, even those living paycheck to paycheck. But before we bring him on, a little bit about Zylvanis, or as as he likes to be called. Z is the new president of the Foundation for Economic Education, also known as FEE. Prior to that, he served as the president of the Lithuanian Free Market Institute, and he was in that role since 2011. In 2017, he was named the most quoted opinion leader in Lithuania and is a co-author of a textbook on economics entitled Economics in 31 Hours, which is the source for which 80% of Lithuanian high school students are now learning economics. Z, it's great to have you on today.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me, Beverly. That's quite an introduction.
0: (laughs) Well, you've done a lot in, in your life. I know that you are currently now living in Atlanta, which is where the headquarters of FEE are, and you've made a huge change. You moved from working at the Lithuanian Free Market Institute to heading up this organization. And first question I have for you, what is it like moving from Europe and coming to the States? How has it been?
1: Well, I mean, it's not my first time. I studied in the United States in a period of 2001 to 2005, so it's it's not my first time in U.S. But, you know, this time I had many more things to pack. So I can tell you, if you ever think about spring cleaning, uh, moving across the Atlantic is one of the best ways to encourage to do spring cleaning. I threw out so much stuff, some of that, uh, some of which I didn't even know that I had. So it's kind of a, it's a good exercise and how and how much unnecessary stuff do you have. Yeah. So that's fun. <laughs> and, 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 and Atlanta. Mm-hmm.
0: And I was going to say, and I know that you're coming at a time coming back to the United States at a time where the term socialism or the phrase democratic socialism is being used quite often. What is it like for you as somebody who grew uh, grew up under the Soviet Union to hear that term embraced here in the United States?
1: Well, it's something between being offended and uh, just mesmerized by the silliness of the term. I mean, we who grew up in Soviet Union or people who are even older than me who experienced much more of Soviet Union. I mean, the first thing they could say is, well, there is nothing democratic about socialism. And my challenge to any democratic socialist would be, well, please find me one country existing in the past that would qualify as democratic socialism. And you wouldn't. You wouldn't find any socialist country which is democratic. Uh, and I know any sort of, any democratic socialist would point out to, to to Scandinavia or Denmark, but you have Danish people or the Danish prime minister multiple times saying, we are not socialists. We are not socialists. We are a market economy. We are a capitalist economy. So, in fact, like, my. My probably the gut reaction is you people don't know what you're talking about. That would be my probably the most sincere reaction.
0: Have you actually said that to an American before?
1: <laughs> I try to. See, back in my 2001, I I was studying in Connecticut in Westland, Connecticut, and uh, that is a very put it put it that way very leftist kind of school. So my, in my first day as a freshman, I saw these uh, communists selling, I think, Workers Vanguard. That's the name of a newspaper, on basically preaching socialism. So I tried to tell them to that, and they basically said, "I did not." They told me that I did not know what what I'm talking about, and my experience didn't didn't count because Soviet Union was not socialism. I think at that point I just gave up.
0: So let's go back to you growing up in the Soviet Union. Give us the timeframe of how old you were, when the curtain fell, um, and what was like life living under that presence?
1: Well, I was born in 81. So nearly I still had nearly 10 years in uh, inside the Soviet Union and then the rest of my life sort of transitioning away from the Soviet Union, transitioning from socialism into capitalism. Uh, so I have a bunch of stories I think some of the Americans would even find incredible to believe uh, what, what was life like in Soviet Union. Uh, I'm not going I'm not, I'm not to talk about like, repressions or political persecution, because that's, uh, that's a whole another, other chapter, but even like simple life things. So whenever democratic socialists talk about democratic socialism here in the United States, I think that they think or even some of their supporters think that they're basically talking iPhones for everyone that kind of and that's not what life in soviet soviet union was i mean there was a shortage of all the basic goods um there was even an official state term it was called deficit goods i mean goods that there is a perpetual scarcity or lack of and any other and most of the consumer goods of any quality or most of the consumer goods which were somewhat good were always in perpetual deficit for instance to such a silliness that Toilet paper was a deficit, basically. You couldn't just regularly go to the shop and buy toilet paper. You had to sort of hunt for it. Well, you basically go to the shop every day and hope that perhaps one day uh, they would be selling toilet paper. Mayonnaise, for some reason, mayonnaise was a big luxury item in Soviet Union. You couldn't buy mayonnaise in the shop because it wasn't there. If you were lucky, you would get like a special package uh, during holidays, which would include a small jar of mayonnaise, and some instant, and a small jar of instant coffee, and that was like a luxury item. So the, it's not iPhones for everyone. It's very low living standards uh, for most people, including the the so-called the workers and the peasants. I mean, these people had the worst. The only people who had good life in the Soviet Union uh, were the people in uh, who had party connections, or basically politicians. No, no, those people had shops in which regular people were not even allowed to enter. So if someone wants to talk about inequality and how socialism solves inequality, I would once again refer them to Soviet Union, the most socialist country. Uh, there, was, there was such high level of inequality that some people cannot even imagine that.
0: And I'm curious, so you as a young boy experiencing this, I'm assuming maybe one of your chores growing up was to go wait in line and see if you can find the mayonnaise or the toilet paper. Were you aware of what the United States was like? Were you aware of what life could be like if it wasn't socialist? Or was it even hard for you to to have that concept at that time? See, At
1: the time, I think we kind of knew that life wasn't that good. Because once again we're talking about what 80, 85, 86. Uh, Soviet Union was already fraying across the edges, and uh, I mean, Gorbachev announced Perestroika, which means rebuilding, and Glasnost, which means uh, uh, publicity, and that's what for, probably for the first time in Soviet Union people were allowed to say that actually things are bad. Um, so I mean, we were getting increased, increased, increased exposure that actual life in Soviet Union is awful compared to. Um, compared to other countries, uh, my first time when I experienced that directly was actually that I think was already in '91 when we officially we were Lithuania had already declared it's, uh, that it's not a part of Soviet Union anymore. But anyway, so my my local city's uh, broadcasting station I think they got a bootleg cable or something like that or a bootleg uh, uh, feed, uh, TV feed from a satellite dish, and that was for the first time that we could see a. Uh, foreign TV channels, and being a kid, I would watch uh, on my black and white TV. I would watch uh, the great American classic of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which of course <laughs> is a great show. Uh, and then me and my friends would be basically we would watch that show, but we wouldn't get, we couldn't get what pizza was, uh, because there was no pizza. Oh, I mean, we've never encountered pizza in our lives. So whenever the, whatever, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would be eating pizza all the time, we did not understand what kind of dish it was. So we basically would be sort of speculating, well, is this a, a, a sweet dish? Is this a, a proper dish? Is it a dessert? Is it like a meal? What are these round things on top? And things like that. Uh, because we couldn't discern it what it was. So, but, yeah, probably probably that was the first time I actually saw, saw what the West was, was like
0: and so talk to me about um what it was like with neighbors and friends when when all of you are trying to find these goods that are extremely scarce what does that do to relationships i um, did w- did you find that people weren't as trusting of each other weren't as close or because of what you experienced did you really tie yourselves even closer to the people in your neighborhood
1: no 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 whenever people say that uh uh, materialism leads to people becoming more isolated or less spiritual. I would I would actually point out that, you know, then you really have scarcity of goods, uh, people are even less spiritual. So there is this, there is this, uh, kind of phony or fake idea that materialism or abundance of material goods, uh, brings, uh, spiritual degradation that, uh, well, Lack of material goods even brings a higher spiritual degradation. So I wouldn't say that communities come, came together. I would say quite, quite the opposite. Not imagine what I mean. What kind of community can you expect if basically everyone is standing in line, knowing that once their turn. Imagine everyone standing in line for something. Because that was the thing. I mean, if you're walking down the street and you see a line of people queuing for something, you would join the line without even knowing what they were selling, but you would kind of assume that they were selling something good. And in fact, if they were selling shoes and you and 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 stand in line, your turn comes, uh, you're allowed to enter the shop, you see the shoes, you would buy them even though they wouldn't fit you because perhaps you could trade them for something later. So when you're standing in line and you know that the person in front of you can buy the last pair of shoes, and uh, that's, that does not breed community. That brings resentment and all the probably the worst uh, human qualities.
0: So tell me about the change. Tell me about the USSR completely dissolving, a um, lot of huge changes there. What was that like? And did you feel that that was even a possibility leading up to that moment?
1: Well, I, probably, I, was, I was probably too young to comprehend these things back then. Uh, but that came very fast And I think some people were uh, a little bit unprepared for that uh, because some of the slogans or some of the naive uh, beliefs people had is basically we declare independence and we're going to live like in Western Europe in a couple of weeks. That was not the case. The economy had to be transformed completely. Imagine going from a system where prices are set by, by where all prices are set by the government to the system where people can bargain or agree upon prices. For instance, I mean, once again, if going back to Soviet Union, any consumer good from forks to TVs to carpets to T-shirts, all of them had prices stamped into them. So imagine if, you, if you're sort of holding a fork, uh, somewhere it would be etched in what the price of the fork is. If you have a TV, somewhere on the back of the TV, there would be a huge sticker or paint uh, that how much this TV should cost. Any All the prices for all the goods were set by the government. So the first transformation people had to go through is to realize that, in fact, people can bargain about prices or they can agree for uh, w- w- what the price of the goods should be. So in the beginning, we had these pilot shops where basically the huge thing about them was that people could bring their goods there for commission to sell, and the, the shops would announce, well, in this shop, the prices are agreed upon by the buyer and the seller, meaning that those were not set, not set by the government. So what was, that was the first huge hurdle for, for people to overcome to understand that actually you can set whatever price you want as long as someone buys it. So that was a big change. So the, the sort of that, those, the level of, of that kind of change, I think that breeds resilience into people. So whenever someone says, you know, financial crisis or maybe the stock market down is couple of po- by a couple of points, then I remember the change that uh, that uh, Lithuania had to go through. All these current crises, they seem like basically minor disturbances.
0: So how long before you think Lithuania was able to really uh, gain a sure footing when it came to an economic structure and really to grow into the country that it is today?
1: Well, let I think that was pretty fast. Uh, if you if uh, if you see uh, how fast Lithuania has transformed, the the the, the speed is uh, is pretty much incredible, even in material terms. Uh, sort of sort of in 91, 92, an average Western European would earn probably 10, 15 times more than the average Lithuanian. Right now, the gap is two, three times maximum. So basically, we are closing the gap. Lithuania is closing the gap uh, with Western Europe or the Western world pretty fast. Uh, and the only thing that changed—that's I think that's sort of the best story of of socialism. So when we seceded from Soviet Union, uh, it's not that Lithuania is abundant in oil or any kind of uh, you know natural resources. The only thing that changed. or The only thing why why. Lithuania is now probably 20 times better off than it was in Soviet Union times, is simply the change of system. We, we went from communism, where government decided everything, to capitalism, where people can decide from themselves, for themselves. And that, and just that little change, uh, brought a huge increase in living standards. And that's a universal story everywhere. Look at China. Then they had 100% uh, socialism or communism. Basically, the country was starving. Once they adopted even some capitalist reforms or sort of capitalist way of thinking, uh, the country uh, has remarkable economic success. So any of these transformations of of sort of post-communist world or communist world into capitalist world is the biggest probably empiric proof of why free market works and why socialism doesn't.
0: So what do you say to individuals who think that the word, the term capitalism is an evil word, meaning that profit, if you, have, if you desire profit, it always has to be um, at the expense of someone else. What do you say about um, those individuals who, whose lives have been improved dramatically in drastic ways because of the free market to those who think that the free market actually hurts those who are struggling?
1: Well, I, mean, I would tell to that person that, well, he's wrong. And, uh, and that would actually give them all of these these examples uh, see there are probably a couple of people uh, a couple of types of people who think capitalism is wrong so let's see the hardcore socialists uh they would deny any achievements of capitalism and they would deny any horrors of communism or socialism basically if you if you if you talk to a hardcore socialist and point out that uh, capitalism or free markets have lifted millions of people out of poverty, they would say, well, but that's still not good enough. And if you tell them that, well, socialism failed at every, everything it tried, they will sort of shoot back uh, that that wasn't really socialism. So it's really kind of, it's kind of impossible to debate the hardcore left, because they basically reject all evidence, all facts, all empirics, or even all logic. They kind of, anything they say to them, they say, well, socialism does it better. So there's nothing much to debate with them. If we're talking to, to sort of undecided person or person who's just curious or, or sort of a person who is not sort of, uh, uh, who is not unreasonable, then I think we can go for any accusations that people throw at social, at, at, at capitalism. Uh, so one thing they say, you know, rich are getting richer. That's true. Rich are getting richer, but so are the poor. And if you look at the rates of growth or things like that, in fact, it is the poor are getting richer much much faster than uh, than the rich. Uh, And if you look at what kind of system makes the the life of poor people better, uh, it's actually it's it's capitalism. So I would kind of invoke my inner Churchill when he said that democracy isn't perfect or that democracy is the worst kind of government, but the only one there is. It's kind of like with capitalism. Capitalism is imperfect. There are things in capitalism that perhaps could be better or should be better or will be better, but but it is by far the best economic system if we're talking about uh, uh, personal freedom, if we're talking about economic freedom of people or even material well-being. So that would be, yes, capitalism can be better, or yes, things can be better, and things will be better, but that's because of free markets, and uh, not really free markets, but the way free markets allow people to create, to realize themselves, and to get the gains of their work, and that's, that's all capitalism.
0: And kind of before we move on to the work that you're doing today, I wanted to just spend a little bit of time maybe defining the different terms. We hear socialism, we hear democratic socialism, we hear communism, and none of those seem to be reviled as much as the term fascism. Fascism seems to be the term that's like one of the worst things you could call somebody a Hitler, a Nazi, a fascist. Can you break down these different terms for us? How many of them are kind of overlapping and is fascism very different from communism or is it within the same camp?
1: Well, uh, what does what does Nazi stand for? National Socialist or the full, and the DAP would be National Socialist German Workers' Party. So Nazi is National Socialism. Uh, even in terms of economics or in terms of attitude to economics, there is no difference between what we would call a communist economy or a Nazi economy. They're one and the same. Government decides everything. Uh, People, individuals, they have very little or no say. So in terms of economic policies, there is no difference between the two. I would go even further and say if we're talking about the evil that any of of the the systems brought, uh, communism and Nazism, they brought as much as much evil as, as, uh, as, as one other, meaning both systems of, let's say, of national socialism or communism, what they had in Soviet Union, they all brought unimaginable suffering to the world. And it's really kind of weird that in the Western world, people somehow, they are very correctly and righteously critical and con- in condemning uh, uh, Nazism or fascism, but they give communism a pass as if communism was something different i mean i would say they're one and the same and they brought just as much suffering so it is really weird and strange and inexplicable how people uh, like i said are correctly uh condemning uh fascism or nazism and completely giving a pass or kind of the benefit of the doubt to, to to communism or socialism
0: and if you could give one more comparison i'm curious so think of china as being communist think of russia is definitely using many tools of state control and repression. How do you compare the USSR, Soviet Union, and to today's countries of Russia and China? How and how they operate with within their populations? Well,
1: I mean, once again, yes, they are all kind of repressive, but the level of totalitarian control that uh, was in USSR, I would say, is much higher. Oh, it definitely was was much higher in uh, in USSR. Uh, because not only did they control the whole of the economy, and they also pretty much controlled, uh, controlled people's lives uh, and the, the apparatus that they had for controlling people's life, lives. That was very, very, very extensive. And I mean, in, back in those days, there was no internet, there was no Facebook, there was no 24/7 news service, and probably no news coming out of Soviet Union. So there was a kind of a the fog of war or fog of, of lack of knowledge. Uh, so the, the atrocities that happened inside the Soviet Union, most people probably never even knew about them. Not even probably some people in Soviet Union even didn't know about them. Uh, the kind of kind of like the you know the, the things that happened in in Chernobyl. Uh, it exploded. What was it? Uh, I think April 26th. On uh, and by for for pre- pretty much I think five six days, no one even knew about that. Even in Soviet Union, we did not know uh, that these bad things happened. I remember uh, May the 1st is May Day, obviously. It's a day off, and everyone is forced to kind of to go to the, to the communist parades back then. And uh, uh, so basically, in, in, in USSR, on May the 1st, there are huge parades that everyone is kind of expected to attend and uh, praise Soviet Union. Well, my parents were bad communists, so they didn't really care about communism. So on May the 1st, we went sunbathing just as the, uh, the, the 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 radioactive cloud was passing ahead uh, overhead so i'm saying uh, probably things were even a lot worse in soviet union
0: i want to now shift to your current work and what you're doing you of course uh, as we mentioned at the top of the the podcast that you worked in lithuania promoting the free market, promoting the ideas of liberty up until you came and moved over to the States to work for FEE. Tell me about your work at FEE and how you're using your experience to talk to kids across the country. Think of education, and that's what FEE is about, explaining these ideas of liberty. What is it that FEE is doing?
1: Well, I think you said it pretty correctly. We are explaining ideas of liberty, and we're teaching kids economics and common sense. Uh, so we're not really doing policy work, uh, we're doing educational work. So if he goes to schools, if he goes to universities and we talk to kids or our, actually our professors uh, talk to kids and explain them how the world works, how economics works, what is price, what is supply, what is demand, why is individual freedom or ability to choose for yourself or economic or personal economic freedom, why these things are important, we do a lot of education in that. So. So one venue where we work is high schools and, and colleges. And we have, a, we have our professors who are, well, yeah, PhDs and professors from colleges, and they go and talk to these kids. So that's one sort of area of our work. Another area of our work, we create materials uh, uh, that we think are attractive to young people uh, to explain, once again, how the world works or how economics work. So for instance, we have a very popular Uh, The the, very popular video series where we take the, well, cut and pop phenomenon and we apply uh, economic thinking to it. So, for instance, you know, Avengers, well, that was a big box office hit. Uh, And then, uh, you know, the evil guy, the evil guy in Avengers, he wants to destroy half of the universe or half of the people or half of living beings in the universe because he thinks the universe is running out of resources. Well, for us, this is basically 18th-century Malthusian thinking, which has been debunked and and basically, basically incorrect. But that is actually a perfect opportunity to explain to kids well who Malthus was, what this Malthusian thinking is all about, why it is wrong, and why in fact you know human creativity will will solve those kind of problems. So we are creating resources uh, for kids and for teachers to use to understand the world around them. Now, how am I using my experience? I would say wouldn't not that much. You see, for most of the 16-year-olds or 20-year-olds, for them Cold War is already history. So, I don't think they want to hear about how bad how bad life was back in in Soviet Union.
0: I'm just kind of curious, have you thought about using the teenage mutant ninja turtles as an example and the curriculum <laughs> since that was so 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 inspirational for you in your life?
1: Yeah, but, but well Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles aren't really that hot right now. So we're using Avengers.
0: I do think they did a remake of it a few years back, but I, I also yeah, remember not Mutant me- <laughs> It's too old now, right?
1: A few, few years back is ancient history and modern life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Z, I just want to personally thank you for sharing your story with us and also the work that you're doing. I think one of the things you hit on that is so important is the fact that kids today, they don't know what the Cold War was like. They don't know what the Soviet Union and socialism and communism was like under that. It's so important to continue to share the ideas of the free market. So thank you for the work that you're doing and the good work at Fee. We appreciate you joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, Beverly.
0: And thank you all for joining us. If you have more interest in the topic we discussed, you can follow Z on Twitter. He's at Z-S-I-L-E-N-A-S. That's Z Salinas. And you can also check out his work on Fee's website. That is at Fee.org. I also wanted to let you know of a great podcast you should also subscribe to called Problematic Women. It's hosted by Kelsey Bowler and Laura Evans, and they sort through the news to bring stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. Every Thursday, hear them talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics by searching for problematic women, wherever you get your podcasts last. If you enjoyed this episode of she thinks do leave us a rating or a review, it really does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so that you can let your friends know where they can find more. She thinks episodes from all of us here at independent women's forum. Thanks for listening.